G'day, Mike Hussey here, but you can call me Mr. Supercoach. KFC Supercoach BBL is back and there's 25 grand up for grabs. So what are you waiting for? Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorisation number TP slash 01005. Welcome to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Everybody and welcome to the show, made possible by our friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Well, today we're joined by one of only two Australians to win the Formula One Drivers' Championship and the last Aussie to win his home Grand Prix. Alan Jones is a motorsport legend, racing 117 Grands Prix, winning 12 of them and achieving 24 podium finishes in a career highlighted, of course, by a dominant 1980 title that put Williams on the F1 map. A member of the Sport Australia Hall of Fame and a legend of the Australian Motorsport Hall of Fame, Jones's no-nonsense approach won him few friends on the track, but I'm not too sure he ever worried about that. These days, he remains a passionate ambassador for Formula One in this country. Alan, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. So the sport in which you excelled, Alan, is, well, it's fantasy for almost all of us. I mean, anyone can pick up a cricket bat, play basketball, kick a footy. Okay, not at the top level in front of thousands of fans, but it can be done. But to get behind the wheel of the fastest cars on the planet is a rush that uh, people on my side can only imagine. To watch the bitumen fly by at unfathomable speed, what is it like? Can you can you put it into words? Well, of course, by the time you get there, you sort of you, you've been you, you're almost ready for it because you come up through the uh, lesser formulas, you know, go karting, Formula Ford, Formula Three. Formula 2, Atlantic, and then eventually into Formula 1. So by the time you get into Formula 1, you're sort of used to the speeds and mm. the, the G-forces and so forth. But, you know, having said that, I'll never forget there's one particular occasion we had an off-break. Uh, the last race was, I think, in September. Um, and then I went down to Argentine uh, to do some testing because uh, we always used to go and try and test at the circuit before we went there. And uh, there's a really quick right-left past the the pits in Buenos Aires. And um, I hadn't been in the car for about six weeks or more. And um, I jumped in it and I went down the straight past the pits. And this was flat. When everything was right, you know, when your aerodynamics were right and your tyres were right, you could go through the right left hand a flat tap without lifting off, which I lifted off for the first couple of laps until I sort of got my eye in. And the first time I went through their flat chat, I thought, no. This is what it's all about. I love this. Well, it's a corporate world now, isn't it, Alan, where I guess the need to swim between the flags publicly is of supreme financial importance. But what about on the track when it comes to driving traits and habits and ability? Is there anyone that that you can see yourself in? Well, I mean, the only person I, sort of, I really like because it's Jimmy Raker there. He speaks his mind. Um, he has a bit of a go. He hasn't put up with idiots. Um, he gets off and... But you see, he's retiring at the end of this year, so now we're all just going to have um, the flowers in there doing it all. Don't get me wrong, I'll come under a bit of flack for all these comments, but I don't really care because to me, Formula One is simply not what it used to be. And that's because people can say, you, you silly old bugger, of course it's not what it used to be. It's, you know, it's advanced. Well, I understand all but at the end of the day, it's mainly about racing. It's about passing. It's about... Sticking your nose in if there's a gap and having a go. 
on the stage now where, quite frankly, if there is a gap, they're all too scared to stick their nose in in case one of the stewards or somebody uh, determines that it was a dangerous manoeuvre. I mean, you know, it's a dangerous sport that they're in. And I'm not advocating in any shape, way or form that, um, you know, people should go out and get hurt and do silly things. But I want to see people racing. You know, I want to see them having a go. Uh, and not holding back because of any ramifications that could come up later in under film or, or, or a protest put in by another team or, you know, it's like when Vettel went off the track at Montreal a couple of years ago, it was an S-bend and he went too wide into the corner, got onto the grass and, and I think did a brilliant job controlling the car to get it back onto the circuit. But some genius determined that he entered the track in a dangerous manner. Well, let me tell you, when you're in a Formula One car doing 180 kilometres an hour on the grass, um, you haven't got a great deal of choice about the deal. <laughs> and, you know, and he, of course he's come onto the track in a very, you know, almost or quite out of control fashion, but he wasn't. He did a really brilliant job. But, of course, Hamilton was behind him and, and sort of, you know, made this exaggerated swerve and carried on and, City came back in a dangerous manner, and that cost him the Grand Prix. They actually took the Grand Prix away from him for doing that, which, you know, to my mind was just absolutely ridiculous. Because if you're a Grand Prix driver and you're behind another Grand Prix driver, and he goes off on the grass and comes back off, you should ease off or go round, not not sort of try and squeeze in between him and the fence, which Hamilton tried to do, and then squeal about it later. You know, it's that that's it's that sort of thing that's really sort of disappointing me a great deal. And that's why now I've become a real, you know, um, MotoGP fan because those boys get in and have a go. So uh, different eras, of course, Alan. But what sort of when people ask you, what do you say to the question? What sort of racer were you? And did you need to be? Did you need to have an aggressive style in your day? If you were meek, were you just chewed up and spat out? To a certain degree, I think that holds true even today, but not so much. I mean. You know, in those days, we didn't have anywhere near the telemetry or what have you. But like, if if someone cut you off really bad or something, you, you know, you stack that in the back of your mind. You didn't go back to your solicitor. Um, it's, it, you know, it's still you still have to have a certain amount of aggression. You still have a certain amount of wanting you um, to do it because it's 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 not a it's not a gentle sport. It's it's a it's a brutal sport in many ways, mentally, physically any which way you look at it and you've got to be prepared to get in your car and have a go and you've also got to have a bit of an attitude to a certain degree once again win at all costs um otherwise like you know everyone would be doing it having said all that i mean max um verstappen leads lewis hamilton by eight points with two races to come this season it's one of the great rivalries in sport i think let alone formula one at the moment between the two of them i wanted to ask you how likely you think it might be that for lack of a better phrase, Max just takes Lewis out in the final race in Abu Dhabi, if it all comes down to that. A la Senna Prost, a la Schumacher, Damon Hill. Could you see it getting to that? Well, you know, you asked me before, and I actually left him out uh, stupidly because I really like Max Verstappen. I like his style. I like his attitude. I like his put me in any car the same as anybody else, and I'll beat them. Uh, now, you know, whether he deliberately has Hamilton off or not, just to win the world championship, I don't really know. Uh, knowing his persona, I wouldn't put a pass in, <laughs> but, um, and it wouldn't be the first time that it's happened. 
So safety's come a long way, but courage is an absolute prerequisite still. And the danger is oh so real, of course. And these guys are taking risks every time. Did you ever worry about the danger, Alan? Did you did you feel the need to keep the wheel updated? Oh, absolutely. I mean, anyone that says he, he, he didn't or he doesn't is, is a liar. I mean, at the end of the day, I, at the beginning of the year, used to make sure that all my affairs were in order, that if anything ever happened to me, the film would be looked after, all the insurance was in place, uh, and then I used to just get on with it. And, you know, when I used to leave the house on a Thursday to go to wherever to do Grand Prix racing, I became a totally different person than what I was at home or in suburbia. I used to get into race mode. I used to turn into a bit of a prick, to be honest with you. You know, I never used to tolerate people coming up and asking me stupid, or what I perceive to be stupid questions. They probably weren't to them. But, um, and I think that's, for me, that's the sort of frame of mind you've got to be in. You've got to make sure that you've dotted the I's, crossed the T's, you've got all the best equipment to wear, um, you've got all your insurance under, under uh, you know, because in my day, I, let me tell you, like some of the accidents they have now, there'd be no way you'd be walking away from them if you're in those cars, we had aluminium cars that, you know, used to hit something, they'd all crunch up like bloody tissue paper. Yeah. Um, I mean, now they've got carbon fiber cars, uh, the monocoques of which can be dropped off a six-story building and they could probably put the suspension back on it and get back in and race the thing. Um, I mean, now, the cars are so strong that if they have an accident, it's the human body that takes most of the, uh, you know, the aggravation. You're listening to This Is Your Journey, and it's thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Next, Alan Jones takes us back in time to Billy Carts in Baldwin and the early years of life in the fast lane. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, great to have your company on This Is Your Journey, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. We're chatting with former Formula One world champion Alan Jones. Um, Alan, we're talking during the break. Uh, great sponsors of ours, Tobin Brothers, of course. And we, so we felt the need to talk about uh, safety a little bit earlier on in the program. Yeah, I just said um, a very appropriate sponsorship at the time because we're talking about safety and we're sponsored by Tobin Brothers. (laughs) I often find myself wondering, though, Alan, how the F1 elite get into the sport in the first place. I mean, there's no set path, if you like. But for you, this was in the family business, wasn't it? Exactly. I mean, I often wonder to myself, how do people get into Formula One? For me, it was a very easy path because, I mean, my father raced cars, Ever since I was knee-high to a grasshopper, I always wanted to go motor racing. And I raced, as you stated before, I started in billy carts going down Baldwin, down the hill at Baldwin. And then from there, I progressed into go-karts. So for me, I always that's all I ever wanted to do was race cars. And I went to the races with my father. And, you know, as soon as I became old enough to do this, I did that. As soon as I became old enough to do that, I did this. And, and I progressed up through the, uh, of course, he, he very inconveniently went broke on me at one stage. Um, which meant that I had to sort of go across to England with 50 quid in my pocket and virtually start the hard way. But I'm very proud of the fact that I've never, ever paid for a drive, ever. And, you know, that I'm proud of that fact. But it is, it's a hard trail, and I often wonder how, how other people get into Formula One. We'll come back to that bit in or a moment. Racing, 
for that matter. Yeah, yeah, indeed. So your father, Stan, was obviously, uh, many will know, the first Aussie to win a Grand Prix on foreign soil. And you do now, to this day, remain the only father and son to win the Australian Grand Prix. So that's a terrific legacy to have, I'd imagine, Alan. Oh, look, it is. It's fabulous. I mean, I remember the day uh, I won the Australian Grand Prix and it was very emotional because I knew that we were the only father and son to have done that. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't say it was as important or whatever as winning the world championship, but I tell you what, it was a very close second. How old were you when you raced competitively for the first time? And where were you? Uh, well, I think I was about 16 or 17. And it was in a Morris 850, which um, my father bought from a repossession yard. It had the engine in the boot. And we gave it to Brian Sampson in Melbourne to, uh, you know, to, to sort of turn it into a half, a, you know, like a little competition car. So I did the Geelong Sprints. I think the Geelong Sprints was my first ever competitive outing in a, in a car. And then uh, my old man had a few cars left over at that stage. He had a Cooper Climax open wheeler. And I raced that at Calder. Um, yeah, so I think I was around about sort of 16, 17-ish. So how, how old did you have to be at that age to get your legitimate driver's license were you racing before you had one? well in those days the requirement was well now you don't have to it doesn't really matter but in those days you had to have a current road traffic license to be able to uh, apply for a Hmm. a competition license uh and in those days and in fact i think it might still be the case uh, you could get your driver's license in south australia at 16 so um I immediately became a South Australian resident and got my license. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. And I think there's some old stories of you racing at Calder, maybe in the Cooper Climax. Now, you didn't have goggles, did you, Alan? I think you wore sunnies, didn't you, for a couple of races out there? Well, that was the time I was telling you about. He um, he had the car, had a couple of cars at home, so I grabbed it with a couple of mates and we prepared it and made sure it was, you know, all sort of pretty well race ready. And went out to Calder, and I had my helmet and overalls and all that sort of stuff, of course. But um, I forgot to have any goggles, or in those days, I think it was even before full-face helmets. So uh, I raced with some sunglasses, which, of course, was a bit stupid because, uh, you know, Calder is still a bit agricultural, but you had the odd loose stone, and if that would have come up, that would have been helmet Marco time. Yeah, yeah. And obviously... For those who don't know helmet Marco, he... He got a stone thrown up at him in the early days of his Grand Prix career and went straight into his eye. So he's only got one eye now. He's very one-eyed about his racing. He won't be listening, so we can make those jokes. So I don't care if he is. Following, following in a, a father's footsteps, particularly a well-known and famous father's footsteps, can, can be tough. Was he hard on you? Yes, he, he was. I mean... Um, I didn't get too much thanks if I was successful at anything, but I got certainly abused if I wasn't. Mm. So you touched on this before. To chase the Formula One dream, you, you jumped on a ship to England with uh, bugger all money in the pocket. I think you said 50 quid, didn't you? Yep, that's correct. And uh, I lobbed over there, and um, uh, one of my best mates, Brian Maguire, whose father was Dad's spare parts manager at his Holden dealership in Essendon, um, we shared a flat together, and we started buying and selling little Morris minivans and um, at at that stage we were making a lot of money I mean in those days you know we were making a lot of money you remember the only trouble is well we were sort of making over a thousand quid a week yeah right um, which in those days is like about 10 grand or something I don't know what it would convert to now but the only trouble is we're spending three um, because you know financing our own racing you have to buy tyres entry fees accommodation and all that sort of stuff but 
I think I might have had about nine credit cards and I was sort of using one and then paying the other one off and it was all just a bit of a juggle, but, you know, I loved it. So you and Brian had a good little business going there, Alan. What were you preying on the backpackers with these vans or what were you doing? Absolutely. Um, we were we were getting these things called dormobiles and, you know, you'd park them down at Earl's Court um, <laughs> and you'd wait for the poor unsuspecting Australian and New Zealand tourists to come and uh, you'd, you'd sell them the holiday and... Uh, they they would buy the van, which had only been there about a day because you'd just previously bought it off the other people you'd sold it to and they'd finished their holiday. Um, and then you'd say to them, look, when you come back, my, my sister is coming over and she's going to the continent. She'd love to buy this because we know it's such a good vehicle. Um, and, of course, half the idiots would come back with about a day to spare and tell you that they're flying out tomorrow. Um, how much would you give me for the van? Well, you can guess what that was. So... Um, <laughs> You know, we'd we'd buy the thing, literally take it home, give it a wash, clean it all out, drive it straight back to Will's Court, put a for sale sign on it, and away we go. It was was beautiful. (laughs) Brian was your best mate, and and you were close. Um, You would grow apart a tad because life takes people in different directions. But years later, he would tragically pass away in a a crash at Brands Hatch. Now, um, he was racing an old Formula One car, I think I've got that right. He was racing and uh, the brake malfunctioned. He mounted a curb and he, he went upside down on a fence and, and, and was killed. Um, what effect did that have on you, Alan? Well, ironically, he was in a Williams. Um, it, it wasn't a Williams-Williams. It was a car that in those days Frank never used to build his own cars. He'd sort of end up with a nice O'Griffo or a March or something and then just call it a Williams. Um and I used to say to him, Brian, listen, these things, mate, you know, you've got to look after them. You've got to, you've got to literally pull them to pieces and rebuild them because, you know, you're not, these things are quick. And um, what happened was there was a fulcrum pin that went through the base of the brake pedal and that came out. And when he put his foot on the brake, of course, there was nothing there and he mounted the curb and that's what um, threw him into the air. And he went over the armco and landed upside down into a concrete marshal's post. You know, and I remember because I'd actually just come back from Austria, from the Austrian Grand Prix, and I got a phone call at whatever time in the morning, and uh, yeah, it affected. Obviously, it affected me because he was my best mate, and um, you know, it was terrible. Uh, but you know, people often say to me, "Well, did you feel like giving up or anything like that?" Well, yeah. no, I didn't because I that was my my sole goal. I had tunnel vision. You know, I that's all I ever wanted to do. And um, yeah, Brian got killed, and I felt shocking about that and terrible but it wasn't going to affect what I wanted to do Your first full time Formula 1 drive Alan came in 1976 for John Surtees now the the car though was known was it not for its infamous sponsorship and it was sponsored by Durex the condom brand now that led to the BBC refusing to cover Formula 1 races during the season didn't it? How has the world changed? Yeah exactly I mean now they'd give you a knighthood um (laughs) you know, for, for promoting safe sex. Yeah. As I, it's an old saying, but that's when, you know, sex was safe and parachuting was dangerous. <laughs> but um, the the thing was, he got sponsorship from them, the London Rubber Company that made the product called Durex. And, of course, we know Durex is sticky tape. Um, but, uh, yeah, I fronted up to the first race of Brands Hatch, which was a non-championship race, but it was televised. Yeah. And the BBC uh, weren't going to televise it because, you know, I was running around this horrible car um, sponsored by Frangenmakers. <laughs> and um, and they, they weren't going to televise it. But the, the major problem was it was a semi-damp day 
and um, I actually it wasn't I wasn't too bad in the wet and the damp, and I ended up by coming second, reasonably close to James Hunt, who won. And of course, James Hunt being you know the blonde-headed English pride of England, uh, they had, and I was in the frame, so it caused major aggravation. Jeez, it sort of defeats the purpose of sponsorship, doesn't it? If you don't get the exposure that you're paying for. Well, exactly. Yeah. But they got a lot of exposure in other ways. I mean, everyone was talking about it. Uh, indeed. Uh, any publicity is good publicity, isn't it? Uh, you're with, That's right. Th- this is your journey, and it's brought to you by Tobin Brothers <laughs> Funeral Celebrating Lives. You can visit them online at tobinbrothers.com.au. Up next, well, Alan Jones's glory days at Williams, but should it have been at Ferrari? You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Journey. We're with none other than Australian Formula One legend, Alan Jones. Alan, we mentioned Williams off the top, and you were the famous team's first ever world champion. But before you joined them, you actually signed with Ferrari, didn't you? Or you thought you'd signed with Ferrari. No, I actually did sign for them. I actually, I, that year, um, I'd replaced Tom Price and Shadow, who unfortunately got killed in South Africa. He was, um, his teammate of all people expired right opposite the pits. And a, a marshal went running across the road with a fire extinguisher to look after him. But there's a brow of a hill just there. And um, poor old Tom came over the brow of the hill just as the marshal was running across and hit him. And the fire extinguisher decapitated um, Tom, and uh, and the marshal obviously killed him. And um, at that stage, I had actually been had been driving for Surtees, and I didn't want to do another season with Surtees, even though he he wanted me to. He actually, I remember waiting at the Holiday Inn at Oshkosh or whatever in Canada, uh, because he had to sign me up by midnight. He had an option, so I waited up in my room. I didn't want to sort of bump into him and of course Jones's law dictated I thought this is ridiculous I'll go downstairs for a hamburger the minute I got to the ground floor and the doors opened up guess who's standing there so um, he said oh Alan he had the bloody contract with him he'd obviously been looking and um, I said no mate I don't want to do it you know if the only way I can do Formula One is with you I don't want to do it he goes a very very difficult man to drive for mm. um, the trouble with John is that he really wanted to get back into the cockpit via his drivers and um, like he he would take the car down to Goodwood and test it, uh, and he'd test it without any wings on it. And of course, the downforce without the wings was negligible, and therefore you couldn't get a true indication of the springs and all this. And a lot of people were listening, saying, "Well, it's ridiculous, John Sooty's, you know, blah blah." Um, but you know, you'd go through this pantomime every time he'd go to a Grand Prix. You know, he had a full width sort of sports car type nose on it, and. You'd end up with the specification, which was basically the way it didn't finish last time, but he'd put everything back. And then you'd end up by putting all the splitters out and doing all the aerodynamic changes, and you ended up virtually the way you ended the last Grand Prix. It was just like a, it was a nightmare. So anyway, I didn't want to do another year with him, and um, and I thought, yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do now. So Teddy Yip, who uh, I used to drive in Macau, for the Macau Grand Prix and a few other bits and pieces and Formula 5000, um, he said, um, 
come over and have a drive of Bill Simpson's IndyCar. And there's a place called Ontario Motor Speedway just outside of Los Angeles. And um, it's a replica of Indianapolis. So I thought, okay, well, maybe that's a possibility. So I went and I didn't literally go back to Europe to drive for John, obviously. And um, I went back over there and I absolutely hated it. I mean, it was just going around a bloody circle. I've never, I've never worn the racing suit so much and done so little. Like, I mean, an aeroplane would fly over and cast a shadow and they'd stop. Um, it was just, you know, and I remember AJ Foyt was behind me at one stage and he came up afterwards. He said, hey, boy, we don't take lines here because I was going up into the corner next to the fence on the right-hand side and tr- cutting down into the apex. Well, <laughs> he said, no, we just go round and round. And I thought, oh, that'd be right. Um, so I thought, no, this is not for me. It's just, you know, it's crazy. And, and I didn't really enjoy the fact of lying in sixth position and having the guy that's running second hit the wall and come back as a crowd yeah. <laughs> um, because you can't even swerve to miss the, the flying bits because the inertia of the car if you swerve, it'll put you in the fence or whatever. Mm. So it was just a bloody nightmare. But it's like rollerball. So um, Teddy said, oh, don't worry about all that. We'll, we'll go to Vegas and have a good time instead. So <laughs> I got a phone. I, I did all that. And I went, came back to Australia and I had a phone call from Jackie Oliver. I'd, I'd obviously just heard about poor old Tom. And he said, I oh, would like you to come over and take Tom's place. And I said, well, mate, I've got this. Um, contract. You know, he said, don't worry about all that. He said, John's a bush lawyer. Uh, if we give him enough rope, he'll hang himself. So I said, right, well, if you can get me out of it, beautiful, I'm there, which he did. And uh, so I flew over to England and I met them at a hotel near Heathrow Airport, and did a deal and jumped in the car and went up the motorway to uh, uh, Northampton, where the factory was, and had a seat fitting. And then the following weekend, I, I was over in America doing a little bit uh, a, a test at Willow Springs, which was just east of Los Angeles. And then the first race after that was uh, Long Beach Grand Prix. And then I won my very first Grand Prix with them at Austria, it, once again in a slightly wet, damp condition. And then I got a third at Monza. Uh, and then I had a phone call from a guy called Montezemolo, who said, Alan, um, would you like to drive a Ferrari? Which, hello, you know, like you're ringing up a young Formula One driver saying, would you like to drive a Ferrari? You know, that's like saying to somebody, would you like me to give you a billion dollars? And um, I said, well, yeah, absolutely. He said, all right, well, we'd like you to come over to um, meet Mr. Ferrari. And I thought, well, hell, that's probably worth doing anyway if I don't get the drive. Yeah. So he said, now, we've got to keep this quiet because we're trying to keep a secret for so when we make the announcement. I went, yep, good. So anyway, I flew over and... Um, Landed at the airport at uh, in, in uh, it wasn't Rome, was it? Malpensa, uh, uh, which is near Modena or something. And um, they, they said, "No, we'll keep it quiet." So I've jumped off the airplane. Here's this guy, pale blue Ferrari overalls, with a great big sign above his head, Alan Jones. <laughs> um, and I'm thinking, well, good old Italians. This is their way of keeping things secret. Yeah, yeah. Outside in a no parking area was a Ferrari with Prover written on it, which means it was an experimental car. So that was getting a bit of attention anyway. So he eventually took me down to uh, Modena and I uh, went to Mr. Ferrari's villa, which was in the middle of Ferrano Test track. And I waited there for about 10 minutes and eventually these big double doors opened up and I went in and here's Mr. Ferrari sitting behind his big desk and mm. he was as white as a sheet. I'm talking like a white, white. Oh. I thought, this guy's dead. 
Um, they're propping him up. This is like weekend at Bernie's or something. And um, he he asked me, and Montezemolo said, this is what he'll ask you. And he did almost word for word. Why do you want to drive for Ferrari? Well, because I feel you could make me a world champion. Would you be prepared to live in Italy? Well, yes, I'd live on the North Pole. Um, all these sort of questions. So he said, all right. So he had his son there, which in those days was Piero Lardi. Uh, that was his son by this actress that he had the affair with, who is now known as Piero Ferrari. And um, I went over to the accountants and I signed the contract. And they said, now, we must level with you, which I've never since learned, you don't take too much notice of that. Um, we are trying to get Mr. Uh, Mr. Andretti, because if, if we have a North American driver, it's very good for our sales. But if we can't get Mr. Andretti, you are our man. Mm. Fine. So I went back to London and said to my wife, look, there's a big chance um, that we're going to have to live in Italy. And she didn't mind that because she's an Italophile anyway. Um, so uh, I read in, in the one of the sporting magazines that come out a bit early that he'd signed for Ferrari. So I thought, how good is this? Nothing happened for a couple of days. And I thought, this is very oh, Lo- Hang on, Andretti signed for Lotus, didn't he? Yes. Yeah, Lotus. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, but you still. And then yeah, I found yeah. out that Andretti had signed for Lotus, and yeah. I thought, well, this is it. I'm a Ferrari driver. <laughs> so I eventually rang them up, and they answered the phone, and I said, "When would you like me to come over?" And there was silence, and I thought, "This is not. This is not good." And then they eventually said, "Oh, well, you know how we told you we wanted a North American driver for our sales?" I said, "Yes. Well, we have signed uh, Mr. Villeneuve." I went, "Right. Well, you know, what do I do with the contract?" And they said, well, basically, in a nice way, put it where the sun doesn't shine. And uh, I thought, right, okay. But like all drivers, you know, you're hiding behind tents and motorhomes and whatever, talking to one another, all the team owners. I'd been talking to Frank, and um, so I immediately got on the phone to Frank and said, Frank, I've been giving a lot of thought to this. I'd love to drive for (laughs) you. Yeah, yeah. So you signed for Williams, yeah. So So I signed for Williams. So 1979 with Williams, you actually finished third in the championship, Alan. Are you consistently placing your qualifying well – and I think you were out qualifying Ferrari at this stage, weren't you? Which I imagine was the source of some reasonable satisfaction for you. It was indeed. I remember I used to drive down pit lane and the mechanics in the hierarchy were standing outside the Ferrari garage and I used to give them a little wave. Now, look, it might have only been with one finger, but it was a wave. <laughs> um, and so that used to give me a great deal of delight. That's great. And you, you went on to win three in a row, I think four of the next five late in the, the season. You had that ruthless competitiveness with Williams. I get that competitive streak, that blinkers on focus, if you like, Alan. Did you ever socialise or spend time with the other drivers? No, 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 no. I, um, I probably used to get on reasonably well with Jody Schechter, obviously James Hunt, because I knew James before Formula One. Um, when he was in Formula 3 and then Formula 2. But no, I didn't. In fact, um, I always used to try and get the team to put me at a hotel where there weren't any Formula 1 people. Why is this? Um, Well, because I didn't really want to socialise with them. I had my own friends back in London, and um, these are people that I'm racing against and would do anything to win. Um, And in those days, you know, like, fatalities weren't literally a a scarcity. So I just didn't want to get close to anybody. I didn't want to... And also, I guess, I didn't want them to see any weaknesses that I might have had. Like, you know, I can always remember a driver one day saying, oh, I didn't sleep last night. I tossed and turned all night. I feel shagged. 
And I thought, well, good, thank you. Thank you for telling me that. Um, because, you know, you're just telling me that you're shagged and you're not going to be able to drive all that well. Uh, so I never used to do any of that sort of business. Um, I used to try and do my own thing. We're talking to Alan Jones on This Is Your Journey, thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Well, Alan's first Williams win did come 10 races into that 1979 season in Germany, but the late season run that followed did lay the platform for much bigger things in 1980, which is where we'll head after this break. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, it's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Journey. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. And Alan Jones has been our guest today. So, Alan, in a sport of high drama, obviously wild unpredictability, the 1980 season for you must have just been a dream. I mean, Nelson PK challenges... But you have a car that's consistently at the head of affairs, 10 podiums, seven wins, five counting towards the championship that you won. W- was this as good as it got, looking back? Oh, yeah, but typical me in my life, nothing ever comes easy. You know, I don't want to sound like a bloody moaning, groaning, whatever, but um, you know, I remember halfway through the season, all these journalists were coming up saying, hello, champion, and you've got it, and I'm saying, mm. shut up, I'm not. Like, There's seven or eight races to go. you know, And in Formula One... You've only had a, only got to have a couple of non-finishers, and your main protagonist, you know, have a bit of luck, and all of a sudden the whole tables have been turned, and that's exactly what happened. I um, had a had a one and a half second lead after one lap at uh, Zandvoort in Holland, and stupidly run wide coming out of a thing called Tarzan, and bloody damaged the skirts of my car, and had to make a pit stop, and lost about three laps. And that gave, and then he won, which is typical, and then that gave him nine points, and I had no points. And you know, we literally went into Montreal with one point separating us, um, and it was literally a matter of whoever finished in front of who that was going to be world champion. And um, I was quickest in practice for a long time, and all of a sudden, bang, he found like a, a second out of nowhere. Which in those days, you've got to remember, the whole field was separated by probably point three of a second. Um, and I thought, dearie me, what's happening here? So um, at the start of the race, I did a couple of wheel spins at where I was going to start. We were both on the front row of the grid. Went into the first corner and we rubbed wheels and touched, which in these days you'd get five years jail from the stewards. <laughs> um, and he went into the fence and damaged his car. And then he had to go back and hop in his spare car, which they haven't got today, which I think they should because... People pay good money to go and see people race, and if they damage your car... Anyway, that's another story. Um, so he, he jumped in his um, spare car, but what had eventually happened, we found out later, that the so-called spare car was the qualifying car, the car that he qualified in to get him on pole position. And far be it for me to make suggestions or things, but it's reasonably common knowledge, I believe, um, that the engine in that particular car wasn't as straight as it should be. Mm. It was like high compression, and they had to run a, a, a much higher octane fuel to stop detonation. But, of course, after qualifying, they very stupidly just put it in the garage and concentrated on the race car. So when it came time to hop in the spare car, that was it. 
So he had to start the race in the in the qualifying car with normal fuel because after the race they test the fuel and he would have been disqualified anyway. So we lined up again and I beat him off the start again, led for about two or three laps and he passed me like I was parked down the straight and I thought, oh, here we go again. Anyway, I think he, he, he led me for about 10 or 15, 20 laps or something like that and then it, it blew up, it detonated. Jeez. And... Um, and that let me into the lead and consequently won the race and won the world championship. And and you'd be the first Aussie from an Aussie perspective anyway since Jack Brabham obviously in 66 to win the world championship. And sadly, Alan, I think you would you would agree, you, you still remain the last Aussie to do so. Do you find yourself like a lot of us, hoping and waiting for the next, the next one to seriously contend? Absolutely. I mean, I'm no different than any other Aussie. I mean, I watch all the Grand Prix and I'm still reasonably involved. As I said, I used to be a steward, but I'm not now. Um, and it's all—it's always a lot more interesting when you watch if there's an Aussie in there, you know, like Remy Gardner now, fantastic. Uh, you know, he's Moto2 world champion, fantastic. Uh, buddy um, Jack Miller in, in, in the Moto GP. It's just much more interesting if there's an Aussie there. And, um, you know... Piastri, young young guy from Victoria, he is going hopefully um, become our next Formula One driver, mm. uh, which will give me a bit more added interest in having a look. In 1980, your teammate uh, Alan was an Argentine by the name of Carlos Reutemann, and it was a, a pairing that continued in '81. Um, would it be fair to say that while that relationship you had with Carlos might have started sort of typically around 1980, it soured uh, in '81 as you chased back-to-back titles? Yeah, I mean, as the Americans used to call him, Carlos Ruderman. Um, but uh, it wasn't quite as bad as what the journalists made out, which, of course, they're infamous for. But my major sort of bitch was that um, when he signed on at the team, um, Frank said, these are the ground rules. Like, you know, I don't really want to ship two cars around the world. I don't really want my two drivers to be comfortably in the lead. Uh, and then be dicing for the lead and take each other out and end yep. up with nothing. Yeah. Um, and the criteria was that we had to be more than I think it was ten or fifteen seconds in front of whoever was third, which is which is a huge gap, um, and no more than two or three seconds apart. Which, quite frankly, um, you know, you, you could never see that scenario happening. Mm. So anyway, Carla signed it, eyes open, uh, and there you go. And um, we went to uh, Long Beach, and he got a better start than me, and I was following him, and he went a little bit wide, and I got on the inside of him and went on to win. And then in, uh, we went down to Buenos Aires, and it was raining, and we qualified, I think, I think we're both on the front row of the grid. And um, he did a better start again. He wasn't a bad starter, and I and just stuck up his backside without taking any risks or you know, trying to pass him, because in the wet, you can lock up a wheel or you can have him off or whatever. And I thought, well, if I just stick here, if an opportunity presents itself and he goes wide or does something, yeah, I'll have a go. But if he doesn't, I'll, I'll just stick here. And, you know, um, knowing that with X amount of laps to go, he'd pull over as per the contract and, and let me win, therefore consolidating my position in the championship because I would have had two wins. Um, and with about four laps to go, I think it was, the team were getting a bit sort of concerned about this as well because they thought, oh, Jesus, Jones will have him off. Um so they hung out a sign, Jones Royt, <laughs> and um, Carlos didn't take any notice of it. He kept going, and I thought, oh, I know what he'll do. Last lap, he'll just 
slow down and wave me through or do something and mm. make it painfully obvious that he could have won except for the deal, which I didn't care. Uh, but he didn't. He kept going. And um, we finished first and second. But then also the way things are in life, which is extraordinary, it was still raining and the cars pulled up at the podium and I jumped out, but there was nobody there, nobody on the podium because of the rain. So I hung around for what I thought was like a couple of minutes. It might have only been 30 seconds. I don't really know. And I thought, oh, bugger this. I'm not sticking around here in the rain. I'm, I'll go back to the garage. Well, of mm. course, that was immediately interpreted as me, you know, having the shits and saying, well, bugger you, uh, and, and storming off, which I honest to God, it wasn't. It was just I didn't want to stick around. So, of course, that was all written up as well. And then... Um, the next race just happened to be the Argentine Grand Prix. Well, you can oh. imagine how I got treated there. <laughs> yes. um, I lit- they literally, I promise you, gave me a police escort from the, from the airport to my hotel. Jeez. Uh, and then when I went for my first practice session, even the marshals were giving me the bird. And I thought, gee, I hope I don't, <laughs> I don't, hope I don't turn over or have anything go wrong here because these blokes will just let me burn. Jeez. Um, yeah, so uh, that sort of got then blown up completely out of control and, um, but it's it's fair to say that our relationship, you know, wasn't exactly terrific after that. Yeah. And I just said to Frank, Frank, all bets are off, mate. Like, um, yeah. From now on, if he gets in the lead and I'm second, I'm 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 passing him. Come what may. Um, Frank fined him financially for disobeying team orders, but you know that doesn't help the championship because I ended up by losing the championship. I think the three points, and that could have all made the difference between me winning the championship again. Yeah, so I think you were third in 81, weren't you? And you probably drove better that season than the one when you actually were champion. And Carlos was was second, of course. I know you had some mechanical failures as well along, along the way, but there would be comebacks and such to come, Alan. But I wanted to ask you before we finished, you know, you're at the peak of your powers here, 80, 81. Why did you retire at the end of 81? And, and is that a decision that you look back on with some regret? Yes, Um there's a couple of well, plenty <laughs> that I've made that mm-hmm. I regret. Um, I remember I got a phone call from Ferrari uh, after Peroni had run, run up the back of I forget who he ran up the back of at Hockenheim and buggered all his legs, and I had, a, I had a phone call saying, "Would you come and substitute for Mr. Peroni for the last I think two or three races of the season?" And stupidly, typical Scorpio, I cut my nose off to spite my face. I just led them on and led them on and led them on and and didn't do it. And then uh, you wouldn't believe it, but the guy that actually took the drive instead of me was Andretti. Oh. That's how things, that, that, how things turn around. But that was stupid because that car was really competitive, that Ferrari. Andretti goes over and puts the bloody thing on pole position like he would never have paid for me on Italy ever again. Um <laughs> <laughs> you know, saying, oh, I come out of retirement, I would only do it for Ferrari, you know, because all the yeah. love all that. Yeah. And, um, and so I regret that, obviously. And then I, on hindsight, I do regret probably retiring. But, you know, what you've got to understand is that for those last three years, it, the, the tension, I mean, it was very rare that I qualified lower than the second row. And I used to put enormous pressure on myself. And I bought a farm in Glenburn in Victoria and I thought maybe I'll become, you know, a farmer, which <laughs> I'm definitely not. Um, and then I wanted to increase the chances of being Christians 21st. Um, mm. So all those sort of, and I, you know, and I, all those sort of factors take into account. I thought, no, I'll, uh, I'll knock it on the head and just do a bit of racing in Australia. Quit while you're ahead. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Alan, hey, thanks so much for donating your time today. To be honest, sadly, we've only scratched the surface. We could talk to you for hours and hours. Um, you survived. You thrived in the fast lane. Your journey's been amazing. Humble beginnings, the ultimate success, and you carried a no-fuss, winner-takes-all mantra with you wherever you went, which is easy to warm to. So well done on all you achieved, and thanks a lot for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for joining us also. You've been listening to This Is Your Journey for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Jump online to find them at tobinbrothers.com.au and we'll catch you the next time we celebrate another great sporting journey. Sometimes needing new tyres can catch us by surprise. That's why tyre power gives you the power of zip pay and zip money. You can get what you need now, get back on the road safely and pay for it later. Terms and conditions apply. So visit tyrepower.com.au or call 13 91